that mindset, your money story, that piece, it's part of your, what I call money headquarters. And I, in my opinion, I think it's about 60% of your money headquarters and the money skills and the different actions fill in the rest. So when we think about it, when we're taught everything that we're taught about personal finance, we're only doing a small piece of that whole picture, right? And so we get stuck and we get frustrated, we get overwhelmed. And a lot of it, we just have to really think through, okay, what was it that we saw? What did we hear? What did we experience? Because that ultimately really impacts how we think and how we manage our money. You're listening to Moneda Moves, a podcast where we cover the intersection of money and cultura. I'm your host, Leon Alfaro, a Latina award-winning journalist, producer, and strategist. On this podcast, I will highlight stories illustrating Latinx relationships with money, our contributions, and role in the American economy. Here, we'll increase transparency around the netto issues and achievements of our community, as well as that of our POC peers, to inspire you to pursue your own financial poder. Join me bi-weekly as we cover stories with our community's front and center alongside dinero experts, entrepreneurs, and innovators. No te lo quieres perder. ¿Qué tal, mi gente? It's your host, Moneda Moves, Leanne here, and we're back during a busy but rewarding fall season. There's a lot for me to be grateful for this year, among them being a part of the Google Podcast Creator Program with PRX out in Boston. A big shout out to the team out there as we round out our final few weeks of the season. Despite all the excitement the season has brought, I'm already thinking about 2023. Why? Well, we're deep in the fourth quarter of the year, and while personally it's a time of gratitude, it's also a time when companies are knee-deep in their annual budgeting processes to set themselves up for the new year. So naturally, I'm also thinking about what I'm building, building my empire. What are my goals, visions, and plans for the new year? These are the kinds of questions I encourage you to begin thinking about as well. So today, it's my pleasure to bring a guest who is firsthand expert in this space to share her story and practical tips for our listeners creating their financial plans for 2023. Her name is Jen Hempel. She's creator and podcast host of Her The Netto Matters. Jen is an accredited financial counselor and started her podcast to talk about the importance of learning your money story and how to build confidence in personal finances. She started her podcast around the same time I started covering the influence of Latinos and money. So today we talk about her story journey, the difference between different kinds of financial guides, and how to best prepare for the new year. Take a listen, and I'll see you at the end. It is my absolute pleasure to invite the host and founder of Herdy Neto Matters, Jen Hempel. Thank you so much for being here today. Gracias. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Me too. And I really appreciate you reaching out because when I saw your name in my inbox, I got so excited. I know you're one of the people that has been in the personal finance literacy, um, media content creation game for quite some time. So I'd love to talk about that a little bit more and about your journey here to today. So at the time I was writing about Latinos and entrepreneurship and you were launching Her The Netto Matters, a financial literacy podcast, but also empowerment podcast for women to take control of their finances. So talk to me about the motivation behind starting the podcast and what the landscape looked like at the time. Well, I was starting my business around that time. And I was actually looking for a platform to provide content because 
when you start a business, you don't know what you're doing. And I was mm-hmm. first told, well, make create a course. And I created the course and I tried to sell the course, but I had no one to sell the course to. So of course, that was a flop. And then I then I realized, well, it's because people don't know me. And how are people going to know me? And I had to decide of course, there were bloggers, there were YouTubers, podcast, there was podcasting, but it wasn't as big as it is today. And I had to figure out what is a, a platform that where I can create content, be consistent with. And I knew it wasn't blogging. <laughs> Me and writing. I know you're a journalist, but me and writing, we, we're, I, I think it's just, yeah, we, we, we have some issues. We don't get along too well. And then I tried you, you know, YouTube, but it was just a lot to put together with the lighting. And of course, you know, you want to look good on camera and everything. And I'm like, no, I can't do this consistently. And then I had heard of podcasting. And I was like, what is this? I looked into it, fell in love with a medium. And I'm like, this is something I can do. I can I love to talk. I can mm. be myself. I pride myself in just being goofy, humorous. And, and I'm not a comedian, but unless you consider me being goofy and laughable than than I can be. But I I was able to be myself and really be able to relay who I am so people can connect with me. Because with podcasting, you're it's a different, it's a more intimate setting, if you will, because when you're uh, reading a blog post, you can get distracted. When you're uh, watching a YouTube video, maybe you watch it and you walk away, maybe you're listening to it. But when you're listening to a podcast, usually you have a, you know some earbuds in, you're walking. So it's a more intimate experience. I decided to dive mm-hmm. in. Now, I was also trying to figure out, I knew I wanted to talk to women and I was noticing there wasn't a lot for women. There were a good variety of podcasts talking about money, mm-hmm. but they were very male-centric if you will. And I wanted to be able to create a podcast that speaks to women and issues we face, right? It's Mm. different and be able to speak to women in a way that we understood. And it's not about dumbing down anything. It's about being able to connect with another female because you know that you, we know we have our own not our own language, but we we have our commonalities and things that we like to do. So that was important to me. And I also had discovered the other piece too was I had discovered in my own journey that a lot of people didn't talk about their money story. At that time, the personal finance landscape consisted of a lot of bloggers talking about savings. Uh, I don't think financial independence may have begun, but I don't remember hearing about it. Talking about couponing. It was literally budgeting savings, getting out of debt. Mm. That was it. And I'm like, there's more to that because in my journey, I had tried all those things and I got stuck. And I realized it was, I was keeping myself back because of my beliefs from my own upbringing. So I decided I wanted to bring that piece and talk about money stories uh, in the podcast uh, because I felt like giving that allowed that person listening to know that they weren't alone, right? Because money can be taboo and it can be hard to talk about, but sharing those stories really can open up the the conversation and have it more easy to talk about. Yeah. And I I can imagine it being uh, also perhaps a little bit 
different um, kind of like an internal dialogue before sharing money stories because at the time... If I think back to 2015, I feel like we didn't have some of these iconic uh, names in personal finance who are women. Like I think about um, Tori Dunlap because because she's been so outspoken against some of the other traditionalist financial literacy advisors who don't um, see the different uh, circumstances or don't understand the different languages, to your point that people speak in when it comes to money. Like we didn't have our first 100K. We didn't have like financial feminism. um, And we didn't have people also talking about how like you starting at a different point comes with all this set of like cultural commonalities that you kind of need to overcome when it comes to dealing with money. And so I'm curious because in your website, you also talk about how you needed to embrace your own money story. Can you talk to us a little bit about what was that process like of having to figure out like, okay, I'm about to talk about money, but I also am going to have to bear myself a little bit here, be a little bit exposed. What did you do in order to be able to bring some of those walls down and come to terms with what your money story truly was? So I have to take it back to 2010. So I'm a military spouse and we had just moved to New Jersey. So we were in a brand new space. My husband had deployed. And usually when we moved, I was always the money person. So usually when we moved, I sat down and we did a budget. And actually it wasn't a budget in retrospect. It was literally a checklist of bills. That was my budget technique back then. And I was looking, because this was 10 years into my marriage, so to 2010, I was 10 years into my marriage, and I had read the personal finance books. I was actually, at that time, studying to be an accredited financial counselor, so I was all in, yet our finances didn't show the progress that I felt like we should be making. We weren't in a bad financial spot, but we were still, uh, we were still in debt. We were borrowing from our the military version of the 401k, the TSP plan, and our emergency funds that we would put in monthly, we continue to deplete on non-emergency things. And I was confused because here I am, family members, friends would always look up to me to for advice, but mm-hmm. I had a lot of guilt. I had a lot of shame because I didn't feel like we had it together, right? And so that sent me on this journey of, what am I missing? And if I have followed the traditional personal finance education to almost a T, granted, I had a budget, but I told you it was really a checklist. I mean, I'm still learning. And I realized in that um, just really reflecting, I realized that it was my upbringing. It wasn't like from day, you know, when I started thinking I had the answer. But as I started reflecting and trying to figure out, it was my upbringing. I was born in Colombia. It was a time of insecurity. Uh, the economy wasn't uh, doing well. My father, as a gringo, so I have, have that privilege, uh, was had difficulty maintaining a job. Both my parents were, were college, their first first to go to college. But so money was always scarce. Uh, there was a lot of strain, a lot of stress when it came to money. So that is what I saw growing up. And I always heard we don't have enough and we can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't really acknowledge that or didn't really uh, take that into account, I continue to think those things and continue re- to recycle those thoughts 
through that 2010. And so what happens is we're not aware of that money story, our past money story. And you know, when our family cycles of abuse that keep repeated is is similar because if we're not aware of what's going on, we can't change it. We can't make a change. The same with our our, our money stories. If we're not aware of the experiences that we had, things that we heard, uh, then how can we change it? Right, we're going to continue to recycle those thoughts, and we continue to recycle those behaviors, if you will. So that's when I realized in a book. I don't know how it came across my radar, but it's called "Oh My God: The Secrets of the Millionaire Mind" by T. Harv Eker, and that mm. really talks basically about the money story. And it it really I had this aha moment of like this is just so essential to personal finance. It's so essential to teach this and it's not being taught. It's not being taught. It's like a component for me. The money story is like if when you're buying a home, you look at all aspects of the home. You want to make sure that foundation of your home is is strong and it's sturdy because if you buy a house with foundation problems, you're always going to have issues with the house. So I connect that foundation of your home to your money story, to your mindset. If you have a negative mindset, it's not to say that you're going to go bankrupt, but there's always going to be have issues with your personal finances, whether small or, or on a larger scale, just depends on what's going on there, right? So that's why I think that mindset, your money story, that piece, I think of it's part of your what I call money headquarters. And I, in my opinion, I think it's about 60% of your money headquarters and the money skills and the different actions fill in the rest. So when we think about it, when we're taught everything that we're taught about personal finance, we're only doing a small piece of that whole picture, right? And so we get stuck and we get frustrated, we get overwhelmed. And a lot of it, we just have to really think through, okay, what was it that we saw? What did we hear? What did we experience? Because that ultimately really uh, impacts how we think and how we manage our money. But we just don't know it if we're not aware of it. I like that you talk about us as money headquarters, right? Like we're already starting to try to envision like a, a company and an empire that we're trying to build. And and it's wild that we can have all these resources, we can have all these books and all these structures. But if your head isn't right because of your past and you haven't addressed it, um, these things can still come up as blockers despite you having the framework with which and the tools with which to execute. So I think that that's super um, aware uh, what, what you're describing. And I think that there's no better time for us to come to terms with those money stories. Um, d- just a personal tidbit. I mean, I recently moved to Chicago at the top of the year. I think a lot of it has involved with talking to my parents and figuring out our financial plans together and like what are the limiting beliefs there in terms of uh, what we thought was possible together. So I think that there's a, there's a lot to uncover there. And I can definitely relate with you. I'm, I'm still on my own journey. You mentioned that you're an accredited financial counselor. And so today, looking at the landscape of people talking about money on social media, it's very, very large, right? You have people who who do news, who create uh, empowering content, who deal more with the limiting mindsets, coaches, AFCs like yourself. Can you talk to us about 
Um, the different kinds of people that we may come across online that are talking about money and what an AFC is. Yeah. So it's interesting you say that because when you're making me think back to 2015 and, and earlier when when I think of like who were the personal finance influencer you think of Susie Orman with you think of oh, Ramsey the man <laughs> there you go I forget his name you think of those names but you don't think of much or you might think of your financial advisor right or a financial planner but that's it mm-hmm. and so with there are definitely a lot of financial professionals and you have to know what they do to know and know your needs to know who do you go to? Uh, because the Suzormans and the Ramseys, they provide a lot of content, but they don't know your situation, right? They tell you what to do, which is guidance, but it's important to know your situation and empower yourself in your own situation and choose for you what is best for you. So I always say you're your best financial expert because no one knows your situation better than you do. Not <laughs> Sue Zorsman, not Ramsey. And um, so with a, a financial counselor, accredited financial counselor, we were, for a while, it's, it's, it's changing, but when I became one, we were confused with a financial planner because financial planners, that term has been a long around a very long time. And so a financial counselor is different from a financial planner as because what we do is we provide education, we provide guidance in terms of personal finance, but we don't provide advice. Especially when it comes to investments, I can teach you what the difference is between a Roth and a 401k, what those differences are, but I'm not going to tell you based on your situation you should invest in a Roth or, or you know, the 401k. The other uh, word that you mentioned that I wanted to make sure that people grasp is fiduciary. Um, so if, if we could just quickly go over what a fiduciary is and what that means about the responsibility when it means that they're, when they're giving you advice. So a fiduciary is supposed to work in your best interest. So those commission-based financial planners that I mentioned are not fiduciaries. They work in the company's interest, not you, right? So that's essentially what a fiduciary is. They work in your best interest. They will need to find uh, financial products that are for that work best for you, not for their pockets. And yeah. then that's and why think, their fiduciary are fee only. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that, that that's a very important distinction. So thank you so much for explaining that. Now, moving a little bit more into today's topic, which is more about setting up ourselves for success financially in 2023. This is around the time when companies start thinking about their budgets. How much are we going to allocate for every department of our lives? And so I do think part of the question is budget. But overall, I mean, we're looking at a space where, you know, the, the economy has been a little bit on shaking grounds. Um, economists have been talking about potential impending recession. So with this as the backdrop, how can we think about 2023 when we begin to plan for our budget and our pillars, our financial pillars? I would start with reviewing this past year and see what has worked and what hasn't. So has the budget worked? If something hasn't worked, what about it hasn't worked? 
Maybe it, you haven't been consistent. Why haven't you been consistent? Maybe it's the budgeting tool. Maybe you don't like spreadsheets and you would rather use a software. So you want to look at those things because all of this is about consistency, right? And to be consistent, you need to be doing, using tools that you're going to be using. You need to be managing the money in a way that you can be consistent. So it's about trusting your gut, knowing what's best for you. And again, not necessarily following someone's advice because not that person's advice may work for some, but it might not work for your situation, right? So it's all about that confidence and trusting you. So first is review what has worked and what hasn't, right? Also look at your goals. If you had some set fi- some financial goals, where are you at? Uh, what are you, did you reach the goal? Uh, or maybe you didn't reach the goal. Why didn't you reach the goal? Maybe it's not as important. Maybe it's not a priority anymore. Who knows? Maybe something else came up. Uh, so look at those things, right? And then when you look at 2023, look at, it's about prioritize, looking at what worked, what hasn't, and why, and in twenty and help that build 2023. So in 2023, what is your vision for 2023 for your finances? Maybe you paid off a credit card debt this year and you have that extra cash that you want to use towards investing, let's just say. So what is that 2023 vision, but specific? It's always about getting specific with your planning and your goals, uh, because with your goals, you don't want to just say, I want to invest more. (laughs) What does that look like, right? Uh, And so if you want to invest more, okay, how much more? What are you investing now? And how much do you, you know, how much do you want to be investing in dollars and cents, right? So you want, you have to have clarity as well on your budget, right? Um, So look at the prioritize, um, make sure you have um, tangible numbers in terms of for your goals and when you want to reach them. And set up times like I like to do, just like in business, you uh, every quarter you reassess and you and you know your CEO at your company is reassessing uh, their goals. You, Check in quarterly, and I'm not talking about checking your finance quarterly, but check in your progress, overall progress for that quarter, and that's when you do a a deeper assessment of how things are going, right? Um, and also make sure that uh, to set yourself up for success, designate times of the month where you review your finances, review your budget, have that conversation in your household if you have a significant other uh, to make sure that they're involved with their finances. And I'm going all over <laughs> all over the place here, but essentially it's just prioritizing, creating those financial goals. Make sure that you are looking at the other thing too is when you're creating these financial goals and being specific with it, you want to have an understanding of why these are important. And I'm going to explain that for a moment because sometimes we say, I want to get out of my credit card debt because I'm not supposed to have credit card debt because that's what the finance experts say. Let's just say this is looked down upon. That's really not a really and you need to dig deeper into that why. So if you're wanting to get out of that credit card debt and pay it off, why is that important to you? 
right? Maybe it's been weighing down on you. That's a part of it. And maybe uh, freeing up that money can allow you to invest more, travel more, those type of things. So when creating those goals, also make sure you have an, you know what your why is be- behind those goals and not just a general why, a specific why. You want to dig in into when it really touches your soul for <laughs> for a lack of better words, like when it really touches you. I, I see what you're getting at here. Right? Right. It's like uh, having that emotional commitment or knowing that there is like something stake in the ground. I guess another situation I can think of, which is going to lead into kind of like my follow-up question on this is like realistic numbers. Um, I don't know about you, but I tend yes. to like in, in goals, like even outside of my finances, I tend to overshoot. I am I'm very ambitious. And so I say like, hey, like I really want to make this big move. Um, but I can see how like the emotional attachment to the goal can help. How do we make realistic numbers? Um, Like, let's say we have this big goal, right? Um, Homeownership or investing this certain amount. And you're just like, oh, I don't know if that's doable in the year. How do we work back from that big goal? Yes. I love this question. To have, to know what, what numbers are realistic, you have to have you have to be really clear, as in crystal clear, as what your money flow looks like. And typically, well, like, well, I have a budget. And, and yes, that will help. But then what you need to do is you have to, sometimes people, when they create a budget, they um, just put the bills and everything that they typically pay in. But a realistic budget that gives you realistic numbers Yes, has those things, but you need to also account for those occasional expenses. Because here's what happens. Uh, December comes along, we go Christmas shopping, and we buy a lot of gifts, and we didn't plan for that, right? That's an occasional expense. Or m- and maybe we go travel, and it's not, if we have this fixed income, and let's just, for, for an example's sake, let's say our income is 5 k a month. And then our expenses are 4500 just for example's sake. And then so every month, let's say you've been paying 4500 everything's good. Then December comes and you spend $1,000 in gifts, right? Well, that you had $500 cushion. Where is that other $500 going to come from? This is when people get into credit card debt, when they don't account for those occasional expenses. So what does accounting for those expe- occasional expenses look like? You have to do some homework. You need to take some time to look at what you have spent in clothing, what you have spent in uh, those type of ex- occasional expenses, and figure out, tally up a total number for the year and divide that number up uh, by 12 so you can get a monthly number. And that number you put into your budget. So you account for that. But there's also one more step. <laughs> so that gives you a, a more realistic number. But once you have that, you want to treat that reserves or sinking funds. There's so many different names now for this. You want to treat that as a bill. And by what I mean by that, when you calculate what those, you, know, you have to look at what those occasional expenses are, calculate what that is, figure out a monthly and approximately approximate monthly number. It's not going to be perfect, but it's better to have something aside than nothing. Then you want to take that number, treat it like a bill, and set that money aside. Just like if you were paying a bill, paying yourself in another account, right? And so therefore, when 
December comes or you want to travel, you've already done the homework of how much these things cost or how much you've spent in the past and you have money aside instead of trying to figure out how to pay for it, right? So that, again, having a realistic number comes from having crystal clear what does your cash flow look like and that is also knowing, making sure that you have those occasional expenses included in your budget and also taking that extra step to set that money aside because then you just put yourself in a uh, situation there. Do you recommend that people keep separate accounts, physical separate accounts for all these expenses? It all depends on what works best for you. I like to because I'm a visual person. It's easy for me to go into the account and say, okay, on our travel, and you know, when we want to book travel, okay, how much do we have saved for travel? Okay, perfect. We're on track. Oh, uh oh, we don't have enough. Maybe we have to adjust to a different travel plan, whatever. So I'm a visual. I like to keep things simple instead of, okay, if I have every everything that I'm saving for travel and everything in one account, I have to divvy up, okay, the goal for travel was this, then, then subtract it from whatever else we're working on, right? I don't like to do that extra work, but there are apps that help you do that. So you may not want to have to deal with different accounts. And it's like, and it's your, it's about doing what's best for you. That might just be stressful, right? For me, I, I like it because I can see exactly what I have in these different accounts. To your point, there's so many apps and so many ways to keep track of things, right? You could try Mint, you could try Personal Capital for your broader assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about context a little bit, given that uh, since the pandemic, we've had a few different um, ways that our community has been affected by our community. I'm talking about the Latino community and the Latina community in particular, one of them being Latina Equal Payday moving uh, more than a month uh, later uh, than in years past to December 8th. Can we talk about some of these different variables and how our community has been affected and how we can think about how these things affect us as a community? Yeah, the Latino Equal Payday. I wish we they would tell us the formula <laughs> of right. how they determine that. That would be very nice. I would guess that it has it's later in the year because yes, the pandemic Uh, has impacted our community in different ways. There's also the great resignation. I think that's another aspect um, that um, also contributes to why it's later. There's so many things that have shifted. And again, I don't know what factors that um, they consider in that, but I, I think that with the pandemic, uh, we as a community, we've always have been uh, very close with our family and family has been super important. And so what do we do if if someone gets ill or something happens? We as especially Latinas, we t- we tend to um, help. So that means maybe we'll stop working and then we go to help that family member. Right. So th- i I would presume with the pandemic, things happen with COVID and everything that a lot of people's lives lives considerably shifted, right? And so they've had to have made those adjustments in that. I think that's an aspect of what's, what's happened. And um, so 
hopefully that answers that question in terms of Latino e Equal Pay Day, because uh, that's the first things that come to mind when I think of why. Uh, of course, if they would give us right. the formula, we could dig in deeper. <laughs> And I think more data tends to come out later. I think it's we're very close to like the the aftermath of the pandemic. Some might say we're still in the end tail of the pandemic. So I think that that's, it'll be a while since all of those details shake out. But I think what you're saying is right. I think a lot of Latinas and a lot of women had to take a step back from the workplace to not all by choice to be caretakers. And we do have data and reporting on that. And so I am wondering, though, if somebody, however, has made their way back into the workforce and feels like they are one of these people represented by this stat of, uh, um, you know, taking like almost in taking no taking a full on uh, an entire year to make as much uh, to the white male dollar. What are some ways that we can think about upping our salary? Uh, specifically, if we feel like we're represented by this stat and by this figure, take and negotiate, understand what you bring to your job. Uh, and especially what impact your role has and in dollars and cents, you know, there's a lot of research that you can do and see what you can do to negotiate uh, a higher pay. But to do that also, I think it would be very powerful to have an understanding of your own personal finances, because if you know and have a, in dollars and cents, oh, if I had this extra uh, dollar amount monthly, I would be able to do A, B, and C. Then you have uh, some clarity as like if of how much more you can ask of a, a part of it, right? Obviously, it's not that's a, a piece of it um, to make sure that it covers what you want to do in your vision. But another piece is understanding what you bring to the table and what how does that um, translate into into dollar amounts that you know where you can. In, or you can ask for more money. There's also that possibility of like they're not open to that, right? Uh, there's other, you know, looking to for other jobs. I have seen people sh shift their jobs in that regards. As they're shifting their jobs, they've just been able to ask for more and more money, mm. right? Um, so it's just a matter of doing doing that research. I know that some, especially in the private sector, it's looked on upon to have that pay, pay transparency, but by law, and of course the, the act escapes me right now, by law you are able to discuss your wages. There's certain groups that cannot, and that's in the, in the government sector and in some of these, there are some specific groups, but just know that if it's looked down upon, um, you're most like, if, especially in your, if you're in the private sector, you're covered by this act where, by law, you are able to uh, have those conversations with workers about your wages and your salary. So just be aware of that. Well, you referenced, I want to just name drop it here, the National Labor Relations Act, yes. which enables employees to communicate with each other about their workplace of wages. I guess the other thing to mention is that there are a lot of people that work more than one gig nowadays. Like Harvard Business yes. Review even published a study about this. Like it is completely, unless it, there's a clause in your work, you know, like a non-compete clause that you need to wa watch out for, it is completely within your right to work side hustles. And a lot of people do. And that's a way to increase uh, and diversify your income. 
No, absolutely. Side hustles are has been increasingly more popular. And in some people, I get a lot of questions of, well, what should I do? And and because there are different types of side hustles, and some take more time than others. And it's about also knowing in terms of side hustles. I think it's important to note that because you can blog. You could drive an Uber car. You can do Uber Eats. You know, you can sell on Etsy. So it's about knowing how quick do you need that side hustle money. That's important to note because if you're needing that money because you're you're really focused on I don't, paying some debt, right? That's so common, uh, especially student loans. Let's say, then you may not want to do blogging. Right away, because blogging is not going to be an instant return, not necessarily on money. Right, where Uber Eats, you drive and you get paid. Right, so you right. need to know and really uh, understand what you need that money for and how quickly, and that will help you determine the type of side hustle that you go for. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that that's very good advice um, because a lot of people uh, side hustles they are also employing it as a way to like pursue their passions. And so, if we want immediate money, it's all about your goal, right? Like, what is your goal, and then you work back from there and figure out what side hustle really will best serve you holistically in terms of your goals. So, I really like that exactly. piece of advice. A lot of Latinos, especially first gen, when we're thinking about our financial plans, we're not just building for us. We think in community based. We may be building for our parents if they immigrated here, or if we had kids, or our nieces and nephews, and we're helping them out as well. How do we not only build for ourselves, but for our community and the people around us? I think first gens.、Um, Have、um, because of the success, right? The first gen of everything, you know, the family looks upon、uh, first gens as this beacon of like hope of like, oh my gosh, they do all these things. Yes, it's great to help family, right? But it's also you want to balance it with not putting so much pressure on yourself. And how do you do that? Because you also have to take care of you. Right, and to do that, I think it's important to have a family conversation, right? And having a family conversation to understand where your parents are at, because financially, and that might be a hard one, depending on the parents that they're stubborn. They're like, "Who are you to ask your parents?" You know,、uh, you know, in terms of our finances, it's none of your business, right?、Uh, there are ways that you can have those conversations, but I think it's important、uh, to have those conversations because you may think just based on、uh, things that you have seen with your parents that they're going to need help financially, and they may, right? And they may,、uh, but you need to know, okay, what does that look like, tangible in dollars and cents? You're not going to know exactly. But you want to have a better idea instead of trying to guess, because how can you plan for these things if you don't know what it really looks like, right? You just may know that your family may need help, but you have to have an understanding. I think it's also so having that conversation of what that looks like, or maybe you want to have a help niece,、uh, your niece for college. Okay, so. Um, is anybody else going to be doing that? Are there? Is your niece's、uh, parents going to be doing that? So you have an idea. Well, if I pitch in this, this would this would be good enough, so, right? So it's about creating that dialogue around the finances of what you're wanting to do or thinking that you're 
uh, being relied on to do to have clarity and allow that to lead you because it's really, really important and critical that you take care of you. And I'm not saying not to help parents because <laughs> we've helped family uh, a plenty of times. So I'm not, I'm the first one. I'm not going to be the one to tell you, but I want to just make it clear that you need to have that dialogue with the family to have a better understanding of what really the needs are so you can plan accordingly versus trying to take it on all yourself. Because I think that's what's, again, my observation. I'm not a first gen, um, but my observation, I feel like first gen to go to college and first gen to do all these things are taking a lot of that upon themselves when maybe it's not as much. They're just taking putting that pressure upon themselves, if that makes sense. Yeah. A big takeaway I've had from our conversation today is that clarity is everything. Getting specific about your goals is everything. Money is a very emotional subject. And I think it it is, speaking as a first gen myself, I think it, it is very emotional. It's it's not hard to get emotional because you see all the hardships that perhaps your parents went through and you wanna you wanna help them be better and you want to be better yourself. So I think like what you're saying though helps bring a groundedness to the conversation and say, like, okay, well, let's get specific about it because you're still doing a big job, but that doesn't mean that you actually need to put the entire weight of everyone's success on your shoulders when it's really a community act. A community act is not an individual show. It's not an individual act. So I think I, I, I like this approach of doing the conversation of walking through specifically your goals and getting getting even more drilled down into how what what are the numbers that you would need if if for example you wanted to get put a down payment on a home on a home for your family like how much would you need for that down payment right or if you wanted to invest how much or can you start with uh minimum for your family to help them invest so i think all of all of the advice that you've given us in terms of like the clarity is super super important and i think that that doesn't get stressed um enough sometimes too I want to ask you as a final question here, uh, you personally, Jen, you've been through so many evolutions of Harley Neto Matters, but also yourself like going to go study to become an AFC and, and being the influencer that you are today. What has been your biggest money learning in this like entrepreneurial uh, HIFA position? Trusting yourself. I really, really trusting yourself that you know what is best for you. Uh, I think for me, I always, as like I mentioned, when I first started this and when I first got married, I was reading the personal finance book and I relied on those for personal finance books to guide me, which they should guide you. But I leaned on, leaned to those books to do everything for me and not allowing myself to maybe give myself permission to not follow those, some of those things or really to think for me. For a lack of a better word, will think for myself, right? That sounds terrible. You never thought for yourself. I just think I didn't trust myself enough and had that confidence because I felt like, well, they're the experts. I should listen to them, <laughs> right? I. But in in really in reality, yes, you can lean on those experts for that guidance. But at the in the end, you have to trust yourself. And I see this time and time again where people don't trust themselves. They're like, well, I don't know enough about money, or the money. You know, money can become so overwhelming and 
and scary for a lot of people. But that's because they feel like they don't know anything about finances. And it's about embracing. You don't need to know all the ins and outs. You just have to know enough to allow you to take that next step, to reach that next level in your journey, uh, whether it's paying off debt, whether it's investing, whether it's buying that new home or buying that car, uh, whatever that may be, you just need to know enough and you need to trust yourself and embrace that you have money strengths. We all have money strengths because a lot of people feel like, well, again, that they don't know enough money or they don't know anything, but you do. So trust that you do and you have to take a moment to list those things out in terms of like what, how, you know, what things am I good at money? And the answer is not in nothing. <laughs> you are definitely good in money and, and things. So you have to list those out to give you that boost of confidence. Thank you so much for sharing your learnings, Jen, and for for being vulnerable and being a trailblazer in the money story space and encouraging other people to really take a look um, and get specific, right? Get specific about their goals and gain clarity from that. Where can we follow you on social media and online? Online, you can just look for me, jenhemphill.com. And on social media, you just look for Jen Hemphill or you can Google her, Dinetto Matters, and you'll find me. It's It's easy. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jen. So excited to build our budget, build our plan for 2023. And this was such a helpful episode for us to begin to do that. So again, thank you so much. And we will be in touch. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing this because we can need more people like you and we need more Latinas, Latinos, Latinx out here speaking money in the course of in the past five years or so, or so, I've seen that number grow and it just makes me so happy because I can't do this alone. So I'm glad so, there's so many more that are stepping up and, and talking about these important issues and, and things. Thanks so much, Jen. Yeah, we, we thrive in community. Absolutely. So thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Mijenta, for joining us this week on Moneda Moves. Before you go, please make sure to hit follow on this podcast so you can receive new episodes right when they are released. You can follow right now in the app you're using to listen to this podcast. Also, continue keeping cuentas and keeping tabs on our Latinx community and money moves via our free newsletter written by yours truly at monedamoves.substack.com. That's monedamoves.substack.com. I'll see you there. Hasta la próxima.